0: Well, as you could probably tell, our campus has gotten a little bit Christmasified. Uh, some of this is because of our, our uh, women's Christmas brunch yesterday. It uh, needed to look beautiful, and, and I'm so glad that it did. I, I've heard from so many of our women who were there that it was such a wonderful time. Uh, friends from the community were invited in as well. I keep hearing so many incredible stories about it. But we also want to have our decor up because we have another event next Sunday, a week from today, that we call Carols and Campfires. This is such a great opportunity to invite people in your life, friends, family, neighbors, to come and make s'mores, play some games, sing some carols. Uh, it's, It's such an easy opportunity to invite people to come. Not to hear me drone on and on, but just to burn stuff and sing. And what's more fun than that? And this is why we forced a few postcards on you. If you grabbed a bulletin, uh, we are making you take three of them, whether you want to or not. Uh, just, I, I seriously want to have you be thinking through, who is someone that you can invite? We want people to know that there is a place here at Calvary that is welcoming, that, that cares for people, that is committed to truth, And this is such an easy opportunity to invite people to see that that sort of place exists. So please take them, pray over them, think through who in your life can you invite to come to this event next Sunday for carols and campfires. Uh, We we schedule this event at this time of year for a reason— well, first of all, it's weird to sing Christmas carols in April, but the other reason why we schedule at this time of year is, is this is a really important time for us as a church. And we might know that if we've been around church for a while. We know that this is, this is uh, all a buildup. We are getting ready for the big show that is Christmas uh, on December 25th. But, but I want to add just a little bit of soft correction here. This whole season, this Advent time of year, it is all important for us. It, not just a build-up to the day of Christmas, but what we are in right now, Advent, celebrating the coming or arrival of Jesus. That's what that word means, Advent. Celebrating the coming of Jesus. This whole time is significant for us. The God of the universe has entered into human history. And so we want to follow along with our, our Christian brothers and sisters throughout centuries in the church of setting aside time to pause to be intentional, to reflect on the significance of what has happened. The God of the universe, born in a manger. And so we, we use this time to pause, to reflect, to think of what, what that means for us, of, of how the course of humanity has changed from this act, to, to think about how incredible it is that God demonstrated his love for us by being like us, born in such a way. In such a way. That we pause and reflect on the significance of what Advent is. And so, yes, we sing songs like, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Out of great excitement, out of, out of tremendous enthusiasm, we cannot contain the wonder of Jesus. And so we don't just spend 24 hours on it. It's not just for Christmas Day. The, the impact of, of uh, Jesus being born takes more than a 24-hour period to capture. The whole whole significance of it is more than we can capture merely on one day. God has entered into human history, born to us this day. And so we celebrate this entire season showing the excitement, showing the, the wonder that is Jesus being born. But that's not all that Advent is. We sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. But we also sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. I don't know if you've ever looked at the lyrics to that song. It's, it's full of mourning. And how do I know that? It literally talks about mourning within it. It prays for comfort to become. I, I, I love, but also, it, it's harrowing to sing this song every year. Bid our sad divisions cease. That's what we pray for at Advent. We mourn. Yes, we celebrate the fact that Jesus has come, that he has been born, but we also, we we come with sadness to the fact that there are still hardships and humiliations and difficulties and pains in this life. And so in this Advent season that we set aside, we pause, we reflect, we remind ourselves of how earth-shattering it is that God has been born as a human. But we also mourn until the day when he comes back. So Advent is about singing both of those songs, rejoicing and mourning. That's what we seek to do here. And and I know that there's a lot for us to try to capture in this season. We have events to go to. We, we think that we're finally done with our Christmas shopping, only to be rem- reminded of three people that we forgot about and then be told that we're also part of a, of a gift exchange that we weren't planning on being hypothetical, by the way. <clears throat> we, we have family and friends that we're trying to figure out how do we fit all of them in. We're trying to get up the courage to fit in some of those family and friends. We also look back on this year that has loss in it for many of us. That's been difficult. And then to be told that now you have to invite three people to an event next week. There's just so much that comes with this season. And it's far too much to try to fit in to one day. And so we just don't. We join with what the church has been doing for centuries, and we take this time to pause and reflect. We can't just stumble into Christmas. It is too big of a thing to relegate to a single day. So we spend Advent looking at the wonder that is Jesus' birth, rejoicing and mourning in this time. And that's what we're hoping to do with the series that we're in that we're calling Wonder, looking at the wonder that is the birth of Jesus, how it completely changes us, the impact and significance of it, that Jesus has come, that he has been born. And so we're looking at what it is that makes the Advent season special. And to do that, we've been predominantly in the book of Isaiah. Now, that may seem like a little bit of a unique way of doing things. We're looking at the birth of Jesus, so we go hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. But in the book of Isaiah, we continue to see these promises that were made of what will the Savior of the world be like? What will the Christ, what will the Messiah be like to help us better understand what it is that Jesus accomplished when he was born, what it is that we're celebrating at Christmas, what it is that we're, we're spending our Advent season on. Isaiah is, is written uh, from the words of this man named Isaiah. He was a prophet that God spoke through at the time. And, and this is coming at, at a period of history when, when God has been patient and loving and kind towards his people. He's been directing them despite them rebelling against him. But all the while, he's saying, if you continue to turn away, if you continue to go after other gods, if you continue to ignore my teaching, there will be a punishment for that. God is holy and good and perfect, and so he deserves all of our worship and reverence. Anything short of that is disobedience. And as God's people heard this call, they decided to become even more disobedient. And so Isaiah comes on the scene, speaking these words from God, saying, punishment has come. Assyria, this, this nation has come through and he's conquered these people. Babylon will come through eventually. There, there's, there's so much difficulty and pain that's within this time. This is a season of punishment for years of disobedience. There's a very famous passage in the book of Isaiah. It's, it's one that, that we might have heard of before or it's one that, that might come to mind to us. In the early uh, chapters of Isaiah, in chapter 6, we get this beautiful image of God's power and majesty. He's in this throne room. There's holy, holy, holy being said. And then we get this really cool verse a voice comes, the voice of the Lord comes and says, Who shall I send to the people? And, and Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. And it's this beautiful picture of obedience that we often use. Missionaries often talk about how they are willing to go to these other places. Here I am, send me. But we often stop right there. What is Isaiah volunteering for? What is the message that he is about to say to the people? Well, let's read that. This is Isaiah 6, starting in verse 9. Uh, just right before this, it says, then I said, Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And then the very next words are these. And he, this is that voice of the Lord said, go and say to the people. So this is what Isaiah is is, is saying he will, will do. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I, this is Isaiah, said, how long, O Lord, for all that to go on? How long will this be the case? And then this voice of the Lord says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, and the holy seed is its stump. If I haven't said it yet, Merry Christmas, by the way. So glad that you guys are here. This is incredibly harsh language, right? This is the message that God sends Isaiah to tell the people. After years of rebelling... After God being patient with his people, guiding them back to him, telling them to turn back to him, telling them, avoid this punishment, turn back to me, this holy God who owes people nothing, showing grace upon grace, love after love, after generations of that, and in continuing to have his people rebel against him, God says, now is the time that there will be punishment. And his people is described as this, this tree, this flourishing tree. But now all that's left of it is a stump after it's been felled, after it's been cut down. And how can this be? If we think before Isaiah, think of all the promises that God has said will happen. Think of all the things God, God said that he would do for his people. I think of uh, 2 Samuel 7, where where God is speaking to David and says, I will make your family line great. I will make your name great. From you will come kings over my people. And there will be a capital G great king that comes. How can God do that if his people are nothing but a stump? How will God keep his promises if if he's punishing them? How will he be able to work through a people that, that have been conquered? How does God bring life from a stump? Well, flip over to Isaiah 11, and we find an answer to that very question. Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1. It says this. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its root, Shall bear fruit. After years of disobedience, God, people turning away from him, following other directions, following themselves, following other gods. After years of rebellion, despite God calling them back to be faithful, calling them back to himself, to the God that has provided for them, that's given them everything that they've had. After years of all that, we get a point to where punishment has come. That this once great nation, this flourishing tree, is nothing left of it but a stump, but a promise is made. From that stump, what looks like disaster, what looks like hopelessness, will come just a little bit of life, a shoot, a branch, a small bit of growth from something that looks dead. Just a little bit of life will come forth in the form of this king. From the stump of Jesse, this is David's father. From the very family line that God made promises, a great king will come from, there's this reminder here. When things seem so hopeless, there will be a little bit of life. This king will come. And we're told a bit of what this king would be like as we continue on in the passage. This is uh, verse 2. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins." So we we have this picture of this king, of what he will be like. and, And what we see is that he will be different from any king who has ever come before him. He is different from the king at the time. Ahaz is the king when Isaiah is writing this. And he is just about the worst possible king that you could imagine, a truly wicked man. And yet this king will come, this branch, this shoot will emerge in what seems like a hopeless situation. And he will be a king unlike anything else. And it says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit produces in him, we see in verse 2, wisdom and understanding. That he will know what is the right course of action and do what is the right course of action. He will have counsel and might. It's not just that he can comprehend what is good, what is best, but he has the ability to actually go out that course to bring about what is the proper way to, to live. And he will have knowledge in the fear of the Lord. He will know God and, and respond to him with reverence and awe. He will respond. He will lead in, in such a way. When, when all seems so hopeless, this king is totally equipped to lead his people. He is fully capable of leading God's people from what seems like this hopeless situation, a nation, and that all that's left of it is a stump, there emerges just a little bit of life, a little bit of hope. This branch, this shoot emerges, who is a king unlike any other. And he will lead out of his righteousness and his faithfulness to God. I love verse 3 there. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. This isn't fear like terror it's hard to delight in God if we are terrified of him, but this fear is a reverence. It's an honoring, it's a worshiping of him. That this king will come and he will be different from all other kings. Looking at you, Ahaz, that he will not lead the people to, to where they've gotten here, but lead people from this situation. That this king who emerges in what seems like the most hopeless of situations, he will be the one that people are waiting for but it's not just that he is a good king, that there's one great person in the midst of a world that's still broken. No, this little bit of life that we see coming from the stump, where it, it, will, it will continue to grow and grow, bringing life wherever it goes. Because look at the effects of his reign and rule. Starting in verse six. It says, "'The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, "'and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat.'" And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth. Shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In what seems like the most hopeless of situations, all that's left is a stump. You see, a little bit of life emerge a sprig, a branch, a shoot come from it. And yet it's not just that this king has come, this, this showing of something I have hope in, but this king, as part of his reign and rule, he continues to grow and grow, and wherever he goes, life goes. What we see here is this picture of this, this world that we live in where, where creation no longer feels the stain of sin, where, where life is brought back to how it's supposed to be. If this seems idyllic, that's exactly what we were meant for. The effects of, of the reign of this king, this little bit of life brings life everywhere, reversing all that, that is broken and, and, and uh, need, in need of renewal in this world. It is life without the effects of sin. I mean, look at the images that are used here. There, there are things here that, that probably got the heart rate of parents up a little bit as we're reading through it. Kids playing with snakes, their hand over the hole of the cobra, the, the hand in the adder's den, and yet there's no need for fear or pain or hurt, or even this image of, of a lion and a cow being together, and yet a, a child is able to lead them. They obey him. There, there's, no, there's no conflict there. There's no, there's no fighting amongst them. Even a child is able to lead them because of how much peace is in this land, how much wholeness there is here, how much security there is. I love verse 10. It, it shows that this isn't just meant for some people, but it's for all the people. The nations will, will inquire about it. They, everyone is included. It's not, rele- it's not just for some individuals because the whole earth will feel the effects of his reign. Verse 9, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. There's no hidden nooks. Every cranny will be filled with the knowledge of the world. It will be drenched and saturated in it. And when we read a passage like this, there's a part that we can get like this. This looks great. This looks fantastic. This is peace. This is life without conflict. This is life without hurts. And yet, with it comes some questions. How can this possibly be? To to hear these these illustrations uh, about uh, about these animals that are completely changed, it, it makes us wonder what happened. I mean, do we have lions that are eating straw like an ox? How can, how can a lion do that? Do they stop being carnivores? Doesn't that mess with their digestive tract? Was it wrong for them to be carnivores? I mean, when we think of the images and videos that we have of lions being masterful hunters, of them stalking their prey, usually with David Attenborough's verse, voice in the background, when we think of those images, what changed here? How is it possible that that they can be so docile in this? And and my answer to that question is, I have no idea. I don't. I, I don't know how the rule of this king can make that happen. I don't know how this little bit of life can bring life in such a way. And yet, I think that that's kind of the point. We cannot comprehend this life because of what we're used to. We're used to this world that we live in. We're used to, when we see these pictures of what peace looks like, the first thing that comes to at least my mind is when there has been a lack of peace in this world. When I see this harmony, I think of conflict that's going on instead. That the, the, the opposite of this is oftentimes what we see in this world, and so to be told these pictures, these images of what this life looks like from this king, this little bit of life who brings life, I can't wrap my mind around it. Our imaginations are insufficient to understand the beauty of these verses. Our cognitive abilities fail to grasp how truly wonderful the rule of this king is. This glimpse of life that brings with it abounding life. My experience tells me the opposite is what's been true, so I can't even picture what this is supposed to look like. I can't wrap my mind around it. I, I think it's like this. There's, there's images that pop up on, on social media every so often of of a dog that's out on the street. And you can tell just by looking at it that it's been abused and neglected and abandoned. And, and oftentimes, people in these videos come and, and uh, they're, they're trying to bring some sort of kindness to this, this dog. They, they have some food with it. This dog is near starving. It, it needs some affection. It needs... It's just sustenance in order to be able to live, and yet when these good-hearted people come up to the dog, it runs away. It can't process it. All it knows is its experience, which has been pain, which has been brokenness. Why should now be any different? Even though it's being offered exactly what it needs, affection, care, food even, it runs away because it can't picture that this would be any different than what it's been before. This is why attachment is so difficult in, in uh, adoption or, or fostering situations with kids. That oftentimes in, in fostering, these are kids who have been in, in many different homes, many different places. They kind of get bounced around at times. And so when, they, when they're in this new home, it just feels like a ticking clock. When do I move again? Or when, when kids are coming out of a, a bad home situation, just wondering if this place is going to be more of the same, because that's all that they've had with experience. And so when you get a, a, a good fostering or adoption situation, when it's, when it's being done right, when, when this child is being offered what it needs, love and affection, a family. We, we're not meant to be alone. We, we need people around us caring for us in such a way. And, and it's supposed to be given to us at first in our homes when this child is finally receiving that. Well, the instinct is not being unresponsive or wriggling away or fighting back because of what they've been used to. They can't process that they're fully receiving now what they were meant to have from the very beginning. When we read verses like this, that's what I think Is going on inside of us. We know what we've seen in this life. We know what we've heard. We know what we've experienced in this this earth. And so, this life that Isaiah is talking about—life without the effects and the stain of sin in it—we we can't wrap our mind around it. We we can't understand how that is possible. I mean, we can we can say, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great for there to be harmony? Wouldn't it be grand for there to be peace? Wouldn't it be so good to not have to worry all the time? For not have have conflict. To, these, these creatures, these animals, the, the lion, the, the leopard, the bear, they, they pose such a threat at the time to livestock, to livelihood, to human lives, to have that worry removed, but instead be a place of harmony, a complete reversal of things. Doesn't that sound so wonderful? Yes, but that can't be real, right? Surely surely this can't be taken seriously. I mean, that's so different than what we've experienced. We, We can't wrap our head around it. And that is why we need Advent. That is why we need this time to pause and reflect because of what we're so used to. We hear about this life, this little bit of life coming from the stump, bringing with it exuberant life a reversal of the effects of brokenness in this world, and it doesn't hit us fully. And that's why we need to pause. That's why we need to remind ourselves of what it is that Jesus has accomplished. That's why we need to remember what it is that Jesus does when he is born on this day. Because when we look at this picture, this bit of hope that's given here, this life that brings about life, while we cannot process it fully, while we may not understand it, while sometimes it just feels like a pipe dream, we are reminded by the fact that what is given as a bit of hope here, this shoot from the stump that brings about life, this little bit of hope that's given here, it came to fruition in the birth of Jesus. Uh, look at my butchering of Luke uh, chapter three, uh, starting in verse thirty-two. So he says, when Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. That's what we celebrate in this Advent season, that Jesus has come as a son of Joseph. Luke goes on to record uh, the, his whole geneal- uh, genealogy, going back through his family line. And in verse 31, we get to the fact that Jesus comes from the line of David, the son of David, the son of Jesse. Jesus is this shoot. Jesus is this branch, this little bit of life that comes from this stump. When all seems so hopeless, when there is punishment and judge, uh, judgment coming, right, rightful judgment, after years of disobedience to God, God did not wash his hands of his people. He did not condemn and then walk away, but he offered hope. He offered means for life, this little bit of life, this shoot, this sprig, this branch that comes from this trunk. And we see that come to fruition in Jesus. He is born, not just that he's of the right family, but look at his very words himself. You don't don't need to turn to it. We'll be back in Isaiah 11. But this is what Jesus himself says in John 15. He says, abide in me and I in you. He switches terms of botany here, but he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In the midst of judgment, in the midst of hopelessness, this sign of hope is given there will be a branch, there will be a shoot, and it will bring about life, life that reverses the effects of the brokenness that we can't even fully imagine. We're so immersed in this world, it's all that we can picture. Our imaginations are insufficient to think of what could be otherwise. And yet this life is coming and it's proven to be true. It's shown to be factual by the fact that Jesus comes when he says the very same thing, abide in me like a vine attached to a branch. It is in me that you have life. It is not just existence, but flourishing. uh, Abide in me and I in you, and you will produce much fruit. This is a flourishing life, a picture of life that's on offer, that's given to us by remaining in closeness and connectivity to this Jesus, that it's in him that we have life. The life that's pictured in Isaiah. The life that we so desperately crave, and yet we can barely articulate. The life that we were made for, and yet it feels so out of reach. And maybe we still feel that way. I mean, we still have to worry about kids with snakes. Rarely do we see lions and cows getting along. We definitely still feel the effects of sin in this world and our lives as well. Jesus has come. He's brought with him life, and that's terrific, but, but it doesn't seem to be like the picture that Isaiah gives us. So I warn us to not miss the signs of life that we have now, to not miss this, this spiritual heartbeat that's going on that's showing us that life is happening now. Do, do not miss the signs that life has come that we receive now. L- look again at Isaiah 11. In verse two, what, what was it that was a sign that this king was different from all others? Was well, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That this picture of hope is given, that in the midst of judgment, there's that little bit of life that appears. And yet it grows and grows and brings about life, abundant life, perfect life wherever it goes. And we have that with Jesus, that Jesus has entered into the world, makes that life possible. And we, we celebrate Advent excited that he has come, but we mourn that this world is still not quite like that. We still mourn that there is hurt in this world and loss. And yet, even in there, we're given a little bit of hope as well. This little bit of heartbeat that life is occurring. Because the same spirit that rested upon this king. That same spirit is offered to all of us who abide in him. This spirit that produced, uh, that, that made this king wise and understanding that we in this life are able to have wisdom and understanding from God, that we can have counsel and might that comes from him as we live for him, that we can have knowledge and the fear of the Lord, that we can know and be known by this God that the same spirit that that Jesus rules with, the same spirit that brought him into this world as a human, the same power that raised him from the grave lives inside of us producing life, that we're given this picture of this king who will come, this little bit of life, and with it comes even more life, abundant life. And we're given the sign, a little bit of hope now, that that is happening by the Spirit being offered to us. Advent is about growing in wonder about the birth of Jesus. Jesus has come, showing that this has happened, showing us that we can trust, even if we can't wrap our minds around it, that the world will be perfected, that things will be made new, that wrongs will be righted. We celebrate that day. But it's also eagerly awaiting for the day when those promises are fully realized. And we're not here left without hope, but the same spirit that was in Jesus, it is given to us as well. It resides in all of us who are following after him. One more verse for us. The very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. We have Jesus talking, showing that what is recorded in this book, this, this book to give hope in the midst of waiting, There's what's recorded in here that Jesus will do. This is verse 16. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So because of that, the Spirit and the bride, this is the church, say, come. That the one who hears, say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. So we spend Advent rejoicing that the stump has produced the spring, that this little bit of life is there, that it grows and grows, bringing life, flourishing life everywhere. And until that day, we continue to sing, Oh come, O come, Emmanuel. We talked quite a bit about the importance of Advent, to mourn and to rejoice. And at risk of, of conflating uh, important holidays at the church, we, we do always hold true that, that Advent does not have the meaning that it does, does not have the significance of it does, if it's not for Easter that this life that's on offer to us, the reason why we're, we are able to hold out hope, the reason why we sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is because when Jesus was born, he didn't merely stay in a manger. That this child born to us did not stay a child, but he grew and he began his ministry when he was about 30 years old. And he worked his way Showing what, what this life could look like, how we can possibly understand it, what, what the reversal of sin looks like with his works and his teaching. But he demonstrates his power to do this by going to the cross. Jesus is that bit of life, the shoot, the branch from the stump that brings about life. And he gives this to us, the ability to live, the ability to have this future, the ability to hope through his death. We rejoice at Christmas that Jesus has come. We are grateful that he has gone to the cross on our behalf. We are so excited for this life that's possible only because of his faithfulness and the fact that his delight is in the fear of the Lord. We are shaped by this in this time of year, and we are shaped by it as people who are trusting and following him with the Spirit producing life within us at all times. But just like Advent is the time to pause and reflect on the significance of Jesus entering into this world, longing for the day when he comes back, we like to have pockets of time where we can pause and reflect on the significance of his death. No point, in no place is this more clear than in taking communion. Communion, uh, goes back to when Jesus was, was just a few days away from dying this death that was to be ours, that, that to take this punishment. So it's no more of lopping downs of trees, and from it we're hoping for a little bit of life, but Jesus has taken down and has taken this punishment on our behalf by going to the cross to die for us. And he shows the significance of it. Well, he was about to do that. He was with his disciples, having a meal with them, showing what it is that he was about to accomplish. And while at the table, he took the bread that was there and he broke it. He says, this is my body given for you. He shows that the death that he is about to go and partake in is done on our behalf. He dies so that we can have life how can we trust such a thing as that? How do we know that these promises are to be maintained? We, we can barely wrap our minds around these pictures. How, how do we know that he is truly taking this death, this punishment from us? Well, he took the cup next and he says, this is the covenant, this is the promise. This is how you will know that this has taken place, by my blood. That going to the cross isn't just him dying for us, but it's the proof it's the seal that he has accomplished what it is that he says he would accomplish. So what he did at, at table that day, we we mimic, we take communion at the, the first Sunday of every month together and we have, have a juice that represents the, the blood. We have bread that, that represents his life was, was broken for us. And we pause and we reflect and we remind ourselves that it's by him giving of his life that we have life ourselves. So I, I want to encourage us to pause, to reflect in the middle of this Advent season that is meant for reflection, to take a little moment to help see the significance of what he accomplished for us. encourage you where you're seated to, to think of what it was that Jesus accomplished on the cross on our behalf, what it is that we rejoice in, what it is that we celebrate when we take communion, what this life is that he's meant for us pause and and see a little bit more clearly the significance of that. But also to think of the fact that while he has taken this punishment from us, we still rebel. We mimic our spiritual brothers and sisters who turned away from God. So where do we need to repent? Where do we need to confess to him? Where do we need to rightly align ourselves with who he's called us to be, who he's made us, this life that he's given to us? I'm gonna pray for us and encourage you take a few moments to pause, to think of what Jesus accomplished for us, to think of where we still fall short of him. And then whenever you're ready to head to one of our tables that we have, we have two stations in the front, one in the back where we will lead you through there either as an individual or a family, the juice and the cracker representing Jesus' uh, body and blood, but reverse of the order I gave it to you first. To take them at that station, whenever you're ready, you can head back to your seat. If you're unable to make it to one of the stations, flag someone. We have some to go options for you to take at your seat as well if that's easier or more convenient for you. But truly take this time to pause, to get this little bit of time to reflect, to be intentional. What we're doing on a larger scale throughout Advent, rejoicing and mourning, to do that in just a small bit of practice where you are. And then whenever you're ready, Come to one of these stations. Take communion with us as we rejoice in the fact that Jesus is this bit of life, this branch that gives us life. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you know us, you know what we're like, you know that we fall short of who you've called us to be. And yet you've offered us the means of salvation. By your grace, you've offered us life, abundant, flourishing life. That for Israel, in the middle of a dark time, you gave a glimpse of hope. From the stump, there shall come a branch. And for us, while we are still waiting for the day when you make all things new, you give us a bit of hope as well that branches come. Jesus has lived as we ought to have, lived perfectly. And because he died, he offers us life. And while we still might be discouraged, we still might wonder, we still might have a hard time comprehending the beauty of your kingdom, you still give us, give us signs of life now. Your spirit in us, to people around us to encourage us the reminder of what you've accomplished on our behalf. We are so grateful for the grace you pour out on us daily, for the reminder of what it is that you did by entering into this world, by this Advent season where we pause and reflect and understand just a little bit even, a little more clearly of who you are and what you've done. So it's to you and you alone that we pray. Amen.